Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we are the quantum mechanics, the podcast for the believers, the doubters, and everyone in between. We are getting into the Christmas spirit, and that means that we're looking back on some of the best things that we've covered over the last year. And the one that we're going to cover this week is Ghost, which is seems like a really Christmassy topic, like Victorian ghost stories, a raging fire, some port, a Christmas tree. It all seems like the perfect thing. You you know, it's your your typical Jacob Marley. It's it's ideal. It's ideal. It's interesting you mentioned that because I read that book every Christmas. It's like a thing I do. Um, Because I just, it's probably my favourite book, I think, if I, A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. Uh, There's something about that, you know, I'm sure (laughs) Victorian era, there was a lot that was wrong with it, but there's something about that story in particular and the way it's structured and the ghosts, which I absolutely love, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm down with you there. Yeah, cool. So, uh, in this this mix, uh, where, where do you want to go first? Well, I thought the first thing we could feature is a fantastic episode. Uh, I was cutting this one down for a little summary for this thing, and it was really hard to cut down because <laughs> it's just so good. And it was the focus that we did on the Enfield Poltergeist tapes because mm. I think it was a new angle. I know it's from the book, but focusing it through the tapes was really really interesting um we're going to play you the summary uh, and then we'll come back and have a little chat about it so have a listen to this this particular case as um we've spoken about with things like the uh, the highgate vampire there are the british newspapers get involved pretty quickly and in August 1977, we have the case where Peggy Hodgson, who is the mother of these two girls, she calls the police to this house. So it's it's rented, as I say, it's a council house. And she tells the police that she has seen furniture moving and that she's seen uh, and uh, she's heard knocking noises and furniture moving. That bit's, that bit's done quite well in... The Conjuring 2, isn't it? Which is based on the Enfield poltergeist. There's a great bit where the police turn up <laughs> and they're in the house and they leave the thing moving around and they just you just see them leaving going, we can't help you with this, bye. <laughs> That's exactly gone. right, yes. And I think that is what gives this case its initial credibility because this is on the this is on the very verge of the newspapers getting involved so august 1977 is we're talking about 15 to 20 days before this case explodes and maurice gross and guy lyon playfair get involved but over the course of the next 18 months more than 30 people get involved in this and it isn't just newspaper reporters and psychical researchers who get involved we have as as we say we have the police we have authors we have people from the bbc turning up and what we tend to get is the accounts written um in their own terms and what we also know from watching things like you know a line of duty but we know 
that people's memories um can be can be changed and people's view of things can be distorted and although it is really good to have a lot of accounts where people tend to agree on what was going on it is difficult to take an unbiased approach to a case like this unless you get back to original source material so what we've got are original tapes that are on reel to reel uh, and sometimes uh, audio cassettes so a couple of different mediums and and before we get into this we just also have to look at the two key contributors to this so maurice gross and guy lion playfair now in the sky adaptation guy lion playfair is sort of the um the cool guy if you like he drives a sports car is tall and slim is a bit of a i suppose a ladies man and by all accounts that is true and he did write a very famous book off the back of this called This House is Haunted. In, in their initial logging of kind of these tapes and then a report that they, uh, that they give, which are, again, stored at Edinburgh University, there are 16 key elements which were observed in this case. And Playfair and Gross between them saw all of them bar three. So the things that are recorded, I'll just quickly whip through them because it'll make sense when you hear some of the the stories from the tapes. So uh, percussive sounds, that is one of them. So wrappings um, and shakings, that sort of thing. Uh, Throwing the small objects. So the Lego brick, I think, is incredibly famous, largely because that is what was reported by the police who came on that first visit. Movement of furniture, beds, sideboards, that sort of thing, um, all pretty um, well known in this case, I think. Opening and closing of doors and drawers, interference with bed clothing. So that is very specific to the girls' bedrooms and much more specific that uh, they share a bedroom, I should say. So it's much more specific to Margaret's bed, that one. Yep. Um, appearance of liquid and solid substances. So pools of water are a big thing here. Um, apparitions, both partial and total, and we'll come on to that because that is one of the most fascinating things. Um, levitations of persons, physical assaults, so people feeling like they were punched or kicked. Um, yeah. <laughs> I like this one, presumed passage of matter through matter. And there's a brilliant story of this. So, so what they mean is without any obvious like open window, something goes from the inside of the house to the outside of the house that seems impossible. Um, psychological disturbance. Yeah, I mean, is that paranormal? It's, it's a feature, isn't it? Automatic writing and drawing, yeah. automatic speech, Disembodied voices, I'd argue those two are the same. Equipment failure and outbreaks of fire. Now, out of all of those, Gross and Playfair claim to have uh, witnessed all of them except for the apparition. So that is something reported by a third party, and we'll get onto that. Um, Physical assaults, they claim they never saw that. And they also said they never saw the presumed passage of matter through matter. But everything else, they say they they came across the very first tape recording from them starts just after 10 p.m on the 19th of september 1977 and funnily enough this is the the very first thing that happens on the tape is a piece of lego being thrown and so 
I think this is something that has sort of um, become like a key part of this story it was in the sky dramatization. People yeah. that I have spoken to have mentioned, oh yeah, didn't they have Lego thrown at them? Because it was also mentioned by the police. So this is this is something that comes up in that very, very first tape. But interestingly, in that tape of that day, there are lots of other creaks and miscellaneous noises, but um, they both both of the parties, um, Gross and Playfair, narrate on the tape that they think that this is just caused by normal household activity. So that is basically the first night of of recording. It's basically a piece of Lego, a chair falling over in a different room, and some creaks and noises from general household activity. Um, these these tapes are made, you know, regularly. So throughout October. We do get various things um, happening. We get furniture turning over, uh, turning over by itself. We get bedroom objects flying around. But it isn't really until the 28th of November where we get sort of something which it feels like the activity is picking up. And from the transcript, it sounds like Maurice and Gross are finding this more intriguing than other things they've seen. So uh, there is a, a brush being thrown, a hairbrush. Um, the settee turns over backwards and the fridge door is thrown open so violently that it leaves a dent in the door. This is There's also a key turning point in the story here. So as bedtime comes around, Janet she's the 14 year old she starts to get emotional and she starts crying and she starts biting gross's jacket so she's sort of becoming there's a slight animalistic thing here and this is the first time that she swears and this has never happened in this case before and um, I'm not going to, like, the book itself is also careful with the expletives because um, otherwise it just gets dull and and the voice which eventually comes out of Janet, it, it just would make this podcast unlistenable to, let alone unmakeable. But it's worth pointing out, this 14-year-old girl who is generally quiet in demeanour shouts at Gross, you're f***ing hurting me. And then during the night, she was thrown out of bed several times. And that was in apparent response to Gross trying to demand the expulsion of whatever was affecting her. So this is the first time where we get a direct cause and effect between um, one of the investigators pushing what he now believes to be a, a, a habitation of the girl by some sort of external force and her reacting very unlike her normal sort of, if you like, human self. It feels like this is the beginning of a possession. So we now sort of move on to December 1977. And this is a period of intense recording. Aside from Christmas Day, Boxing Day and New Year's Eve, there wasn't really a day when Morris and or Playfair didn't visit the Hodgson household and make extensive recordings. 
And one of the key things that happens very early in the month is Janet appearing to be genuinely very upset by a door opening and closing by itself when she was alone and then being thrown up the stairs. So this is the first time outside of her bedroom where she feels that she is being directly... This is the first time where at least she tells the researchers on tape where that she feels that she's being sort of directly targeted by this force and um, being scared by the movement of this door in the house and then being thrown up the stairs. And then when we get to the 10th of December, and this this is crucial because this happens at 6.35 and the mother says things tend to happen for some reason at 25 to the hour, there is a growling voice heard near Janet. And this is the beginning of what is known as the voice. This growling noise in amongst... Um, there is some screaming and there is some jumping out of bed and Gross is there and Janet starts barking like a dog. And so Gross takes this opportunity and asks for his name to be said out loud. And he's quite short-tempered with Janet as she just sort of makes these barking noises. And and this, this reference to dogs comes up later, which is fascinating so keep that in your head and eventually his name is said but is followed by a whole barrel of expletives but the voice that comes out is so far away from being that of a 14 year old girl it takes everyone aback um we've got a recording of that now just have a listen to this let me hear you say my name come on let me hear you say my name But there's a there's a there's a reason why it says a growling voice heard near Janet, because it appears to come not from Janet. That's the intriguing thing, even though she is the only protagonist in that position you know that could be making it if we rule out a paranormal form So she would have to be not only a great mimic, but a, almost a ventriloquist as well to pull both of that off, right? Well, I think if one was taking a hardline view on this, one would say 
how do you know it didn't come you know how do you know it was from near janet rather than from her yeah. and and it's a very subjective thing isn't it because um we all you know like we all get tricked by our own senses and so i don't think one can put a whole one can't base a theory on that but i do think it's interesting that it wasn't janet said this or janet made this noise it was a, a voice near janet and it could be i think it's worth saying it could be that if you hear the noise that we've all just heard coming out of a 14 year old girl i keep saying it but if you hear that noise coming out of her your brain might be doing somersaults and not assign it to her voice you're thinking well this is coming yeah, from yeah. somewhere else so yeah i think that is worth yeah. you know bearing in mind yeah. But Gross goes on in the future to uh, do this sort of cross-examination of the voice. But what is really fascinating is how absent or confusing the responses are. And they refer to this as the voice because it doesn't introduce itself for a while. But when it does, the first sort of interaction where it gives a name he well it but let's say he he introduces himself as bill wilkinson he refuses to give his age but he says he lived in the house so the house where the hodgson's are yeah and he says he was married with three children but won't name them he then goes into a huge barrage of swearing and like it's not just the f word it's it's like um it's it's a barrage of obscenities basically yeah then gross sort of ignores it and says he asks him directly how do you do your tricks and then recorded on the tape is a whole load of beds creaking and girls laughter and then like and this is one of the strangest moments i think in all the tapes the voice says that it steals money from the shop and it has a dog present called goober the ghost and then bill says his age is 72 and that his children are 16 and 18 and then it goes on <laughs> to say that it wants janet out of the bed and it and i quote and likes living in the house so gross then continues he he thinks he's onto something here yeah he's got something here and he asks some more questions and every time he asks a subsequent question he either gets no reply or gets told to f off that is the only reply he gets so he gets this strange reply about stealing money and a dog called Goober. Which and, is bizarre. Which is absolutely bizarre. There is Did you say a ghost dog called Goober. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is well it's yeah. called he calls it he calls it Goober the Ghost. Um in a subsequent interrogation of the voice, for no reason that I can specifically find, because there isn't a great reason as to why in the uh in the uh, as the sort of the continuation narrative of the tapes but um 
uh, Guy Lyon Playfair asks The Voice about jazz music. As I say, not sure why. Um, And The Voice replies saying, Scarlet Fever. And then on the tape, there is a lot of girls' laughter. And so that is clearly, you know, the two girls. And then there is more fake barking and woofing like we first heard in that clip it it seems to be the same thing and then gross has this idea that maybe he can get the voice to sing at the same time as janet so that he would get both voices on tape at the same time so gross and Playfair initiate this uh, potential sing-along with Janet and The Voice. They encourage it, and they suggest maybe you should sing Daisy Daisy or Frere Jacques or Oranges and Lemons. And The Voice and Janet, they won't sing together. They don't capture them singing together. They capture little bits of each of them doing a little bit sort of half-heartedly but at no time is there a time when the voice and Janet are both doing it. Now, in this um, not very uh, successful sing song, the voice is swearing a lot. He, he he is just like he just becomes completely, I don't know, sort of um, hostile. But he keeps dropping in peculiar phrases so he says i have 58 dogs to protect me and then he says i am bill Hay- haylock and i didn't die and he also peculiarly demands that gross and playfair must stay outside to keep out all the germs um which is something sort of uh, fairly redolent to today's times but um yeah i think that's that's weird and then he goes on to say his first and longest coherent sentence so unprompted he says i'm 72 years years old i come from the graveyard at durrance park and all my friends we go to the pub and i used to live here when i was alive i suffered from blindness and I never had a dog. I died from a hemorrhage. I'm Bill Wilkinson, and I died 15 years ago, and my wife died four years ago. Right, that's good. Come on, Shut up, I'm 72 years old. I come from Jewish Park, Rachel. And I have right near the church. Where really Yeah. 
And that is the most coherent set of information they get at this time. And then... And I'm assuming they checked out that information, did they? Do we know? Well, well, we'll get onto that, but I can reveal that... But Bill Wilkinson absolutely did live in the house and did die of a hemorrhage on a chair Mm. downstairs. That is is true. I will say from the other side of things, it is possible that Janet knew that because... That's how they achieve yeah. this council house. You don't get a council house without somebody clearing yeah. a council house. And yeah. even if she wasn't told it directly, she's 14, you know. 14-year-old yeah. kids are not dumb. People talk. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it is absolutely within the realms of possibility that she knew that. We do we do hear in a minute that if we say if we call the voice Bill he does not appreciate being a performing monkey. That is something that comes out. Um, what is interesting from these tapes and like gets lost from the films for reasons you will see that it is obvious. After he talks about, you know, he gives this brief pricey of his life story and where he is, he then goes back to talking about really peculiar offbeat stuff and he i've edited this quite highly because he goes on to talk about like basically sexually orientated stuff so he starts talking about bras and knickers and he says those things that you use and um he talks about he he asks um it's not clear to me which one but he asks morris or uh guy to take off their trousers and he then asks basically about the birds and the bees and he asks why women give birth through their bottoms this is like you know in the transcripts and what is sort of fascinating is that um the investigators kind of answer his questions as if they were coaching a young child who was asking about the birds and the bees. And the language that the voice is using is incredibly childish. And it is full of, like, he, he calls men's genitalia a tinkle, for example. So it's really, like, childish stuff. But... At the same time, he's using massively obscene language. And this is the first time when I was reading these transcripts that I thought, okay, so there's one way of reading this, which is, you know, there's, you could say that Janet, presumably aided by the mother and at least her sister, is has found a way somehow of imitating a 72-year-old man in her voice because there is no arguing that that is what she sounds like. We've heard we've heard the audio. And she's got enough knowledge that she can say a few things that make people feel slightly impressed. And that is making people believe, you know, the story that there is something possessing her. On the other hand, if you were 
some kind of lower level spirit, some kind of, I'm not going to say demon because I was always saying, I think demon has a lot of uh, sort of Catholic and religious overtones. But if we say that there is, let's say, a playful spirit who's doing this, then I think it's perfectly legitimate that it might use obscene terms and then find it very, very funny to use these incredibly childish terms and embarrass the people who are investigating by asking, you know, questions about where children come from. That is, you know, that is something that it feels like it isn't beyond the realms of possibility to do. I still don't know what I think about the Enfield poltergeist. Mm. I and listening it back to it when I cut it down, listening it back to it now, my my mind changes. I kind of think, yeah, it was the girls and they were yeah, just almost I tell you what it reminded me of actually. It reminded me a bit when we covered the story of the Fox sisters mm-hmm. in America who started doing paranormal stuff and then found they couldn't stop and that people would think badly of them if they admitted that they were making it up and got carried away with the attention and people coming round and then started doing live shows and started making money. I know that's different to the Enfield story, but I wonder if it it kind of follows that that similar pattern of oh I've done this thing and now people are getting really interested so you keep it going but again like the Fox sisters yes the Fox sisters wrote a letter or one of them did to say yeah we we made it up and was almost like a confession but then later recanted that and said no you know we did experience these paranormal stuff and it's a bit like that story I just don't know where to go with it mm, mm. yeah yeah no I I completely agree and I think that is the enigma that we always thought if we spent significant amount of our days looking into this stuff and you know even went to the extent of doing podcasts about it we might get to the bottom of it but when you look at the Enfield poltergeist nobody has and then like I think about Chris who wrote the book about Jeff the talking mongoose who spent eight years of his life writing that book and didn't get any closer to what he considers to be the truth it it is you know it's one of the greatest enigmas of all time and yeah but it's still it's a darn good story it's amazing and actually just hearing i tell you what the bit listening to the tapes bit actually the talking is weird but i kind of go yeah that does sound like it could be you know a young girl trying to do the voice of an old man it's the dog barking that gets me Mm. every time i Mm. hear it because it's so real so real Mm. i don't know people are good ventriloquists and can do things like that but it's how amazing that dog barking is every time Mm. Yeah, yeah agree agree well, let's have a quick, this is a very quick story we're going to go into next. Uh, we did a thing for Valentine's Day on ghost love. So <laughs> these are people who either uh, have fallen in love with ghosts or have, how do I put it subtly, a romantic life with a ghost in more ways than one. They've had an apparition uh, in their special area. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, so we're going to 
I've just picked one of these stories, and it's this crazy story of this woman who said she had multiple affairs <laughs> with ghosts. Oh, affairs, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she was going to marry a ghost, but it, it didn't work out particularly well. But this is uh, a story that originally broke in 2018 um, about somebody, a woman called Amethyst Realm, who uh, said she fell in love with a ghost and planned to marry one. She uh, is a 27-year-old, or was at the time, spiritual counsellor from Bristol in England. Uh, She appeared on a popular daytime TV show here in the UK called This Morning, and uh, she went on the show to say how she hoped to settle down and perhaps even have a baby someday with a ghost. She met and fell in love with her spirit partner on a visit to Australia. Apparently the ghost hitched a ride back on the plane back to England with her uh, and the couple plans to get married. She also explained her plans to start a ghostly family. She said... I've been looking into phantom pregnancies and I believe that a phantom pregnancy is actually a real pregnancy but you have a phantom inside of you rather than a real baby. (laughs) Yep. Um, Apparently this trip to Australia wasn't her first uh, encounter with a spiritual being. Uh, It all... (laughs) I love this story. It all started in 2005 while her real flesh and blood fiancé was working away from home. Amethyst says that she started to feel a presence of a supernatural being in the spare room. That's not a euphemism. That is the spare room. Um, She was not afraid of it, quite the contrary. Convinced that this spirit had the hots for her, one evening she decided to make the first move. She dressed up in sexy underwear and sat and waited. She recalls that she felt its presence just as she was dropping off to sleep. She goes on to explain that what followed was the first of many sexual encounters with the spirit. (laughs) It wasn't long before her real flesh and blood fiancé moved out of the house on the ground she was having an affair. He had seen the shadowy figure of a man through the bedroom window, reports Amethyst, much to the annoyance of herself as she'd never actually seen her her, um, uh, her spirit lover in physical form. (laughs) So actually her flesh and blood fiancé had seen him, but she hadn't. So the first fiancé, real life, moves out because she's having an affair with this spirit. Uh, Amethyst says this first relationship lasted for three years and then they just drifted apart. So it's just the same as normal relationships can be. Um, But for Amethyst, a relationship with a real man couldn't compare to her spiritual experience and she turned to seeking love from ghosts. Uh, Amethyst claims to have had sexual encounters with at least 15 ghosts, including a number of one-night stands. She explains that sex with a spirit is on a different level. Ghost lovers tend to be more sensual and adept than the average bloke. There's always more of a connection because the sex goes beyond physical. It's like any other kind of sex, but the main difference is I just can't see them. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Amethyst says that she immediately felt a strong connection when she encountered her current lover in Australia, unlike anything she had felt in her previous encounters. 
She gave in to the moment and did not think it would develop any further. According to Amethyst, spirits tend to be quite static. I'm not quite sure what that means. I don't know whether that, whether that means they're not good lovers, whether they just, maybe it's a good thing. However, something extraordinary happened. During the flight home, she uh, felt she was not alone and that her lover was right beside her. It seems that her friends and family are quite accepting of the unorthodox relationship. Amethyst told People magazine that most of my friends are happy that I've found love. If they think I'm mad, they seem to be keeping it to themselves. <laughs> Nine months into their relationship, while the couple were hiking at Wookiee Hole Caves, <laughs> <laughs> her spirit asked her to marry him. This was the first time she'd heard his voice. She told the Sun newspaper, there was no going down on one knee. He didn't go down on one knee. He doesn't have knees. <laughs> but for the first time, I heard him speak. I could actually hear his voice, and it was beautiful, deep, sexy, and real. Uh, Amethyst was planning a pagan hand-fasting marriage ceremony. I don't know what that is. I don't know if you know what that is. but uh, They were choosing a ring that was symbolically going to be set with an amethyst stone to match her name. But I found an update. So that, that was in 2018. I found an update to this story from last year. Unfortunately, as with real-life relationships, th things didn't go as smoothly as planned when the two, uh, when the couple fell out of love on a holiday to Thailand in 2020. Amethyst says, it was going really well until we went on holiday, and that was last May, and he just completely changed. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to love this. I think he fell in with a bad crowd while we were on holiday. <laughs> he would disappear for long periods of time and bring back other spirits into the house. Yeah, he just changed. She goes on to say, I think maybe he started doing drugs and partying a bit much. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> These spirits would stay in her house for days. There would be crashing and banging and strange noises. She tried to make the relationship work when they got back to the UK, but she ended up kicking her spiritual lover out of the house by performing a sage cleanse. <laughs> I think the thing that strikes me most about that is that the insinuation is that there are spectral amphetamines, and I had not expected <laughs> that. But if there are, yeah. and, you know... I, uh, I I say live and let live. I just like a pint of beer. But on the other hand, that gives me excitement that maybe if there are spectral amphetamines, there might be a spectral Big Mac, and therefore going to the other side Whoa. might be okay. Yeah. yeah, unless that's why they come back. <laughs> they're, they're looking for Big Mac and drugs. That's the, we maybe we've solved ghosts again. The only reason they turn up <laughs> is they're looking to buy something illegal or get a Big Mac. But, but no, but in that story, it was the ghost bringing the ghost back. The 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 alive protagonist. She didn't want anything of the drug taking. So no, no, no. She was accusing the ghost. Yeah, of yeah. So, so they yeah. weren't taking unless they were somehow stealing real drugs. They were taking spectral drugs, and yeah. and and therefore I'll be happy with my spectral Big Mac, and fillet of fish, yeah. and cheeseburger, fries, mozzarella dips, and yeah. uh, chocolate milkshake. <laughs> 
And do you have to uh, get a poltergeist to take the gherkins out for you? <laughs> I, I'll take all the gherkins. I'll take it's it all. I love the gherkins, yeah. No, I love the gherkins too. We're going to get back into one of the longer um, episodes we did, which was, uh, again, focused on one story. And certainly somewhere that you wouldn't want to go to on any drug, spectral or not. And that's 30 East Drive. Have a listen. It's one of those where actually the haunting isn't necessarily, it's, it doesn't coalesce around a particular individual. It's still there. And, well, spoiler alert, nobody now lives in that house. And this thing is still there. But it's kind of interesting because 30 East Drive, so Pontefract is, it's a town uh, up in the north of England. That's probably um, all you need to know. And 30 East Drive is, it's a really unassuming 1930s council house. So, and it is a perfectly nice and completely normal-looking semi-detached house. But the, the story of 30 East Drive, it kicks off in August 1966. So Jean and Joe, who were the parents, and Philip, who's 15, and Diane, who is 12, move into this house. And it's... In it's as I say, it's August 1966, and they move in um, just before the bank holiday. And that particular bank holiday was a really warm one. It was sweltering, and they had um, their grandmother over. The children had their grandmother over, and the phenomena shows itself for the first time. And what it does is layer a fine. Dust is the only way of describing it, of some chalk-like material which is falling not from the ceiling but from a level below head height and it covers a good deal of the house. And so this is, this is peculiar, obviously, but people and the family think, well, maybe it's... You know, maybe it's uh, plaster work. Maybe it's something from the ceiling. Maybe it's right. a really particular, strange sort of dust. But when they go to clean it up, the next thing they notice is these pools of water and they start appearing in the kitchen. So they go into the kitchen to find items to clean the house up. And there are these huge pools of water all over the um, the lino. And they aren't just there. They also start appearing. So th there are these, um, the, this water is appearing in front of people's eyes. Wow. And so this is the beginning of a long era of peculiar things happening. So you get reports of, for example, green foam appearing from taps, um, the tea dispenser being activated. Um, I don't know what a tea dispenser is, but as far as what I read, I'm I'm assuming it's like an automatic teapot. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. And then your normal stuff like um, <laughs> a tea bag. 
your tea bag, yeah. Um, lights being turned on and off, plants coming out of their pots, um, levitation, throwing objects, that sort right. of thing. Although this entity does seem to, like, as is common with all of these, it does pay particular attention to the the youngest female in the house. It isn't doing those things that we see from the Enfield poltergeist. It isn't like regularly throwing them out of bed or talking through their voice boxes or anything like that. But as a consequence of all the weird stuff, by 1968, the local press have picked up on this and the press start to dub the entity Mr. Nobody. But the family who really would like to sort of make a point of not making a point of this entity because they would like it to go away. They call it Fred because that is obviously it's a friendly name and they're thinking, well, you know, yeah. give it a friendly name. It's Don't not so terrifying. Yeah. Um but things things don't go away and things continue. There are sort of low-level reports of it in the press. It doesn't reach the same levels as the Enfield poltergeist. But um, Fred's antics become sort of... They, they evolve and become weirder and in some ways more amusing. So, for example, there's a moment where uh, the kids have one of their aunts over and apparently she's really sceptical about what's going on. And Fred takes an entire jug of milk out of the fridge and pours it over her head. Wow. It, it almost, you know, taunting her. It's. I, I'm, it, I'm thinking of kind of, you know, Dobby in Harry Potter. It's right. that, Yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, completely right. And this is, this sort of ca- carries on this... Um, like it's it's almost a playful um type of image although it is true that um all of the family do end up with a few bruises and scrapes and a few scares and in particular diane who as i say she she become she is the focus of the haunting although um you know everybody else is affected as well but this this goes on and on and there are these sort of they're almost like things that you could forgive if they weren't happening every day um but the 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 sort of the game-changing moment is by 1968 one day she's walking up the stairs and these are like i can't emphasize enough this is a Although it looks largish from the outside, and by these today's standards, yeah, it's a reasonable sized house. The this is not a grand staircase. This is just a staircase in a council house. Right. Um, she is grabbed and pulled up the stairs. Her she's got long hair, and everybody who witnessed this incident says that her long hair stood on end, which is, you know, quite a thing. And she was really traumatized because there were visible finger marks on her throat. Wow. And this was the moment where the family took the decision to leave. The entities who are doing this, it is confusing as to who they are. So we're not really entirely certain who coins 
the term the black monk. So we're assuming the black monk is what the family called Fred. Um, and the reason we believe he's called the black monk is because he's sometimes seen as like a shadowy figure wearing a cowl and a long robe. So right. a monk-like outfit. And there, it also appears to be potentially two young girl entities that have been discovered sort of since the family. So if you imagine the family left the house in the late 60s. Um, And then there is also another male spirit there who is sometimes referred to as Victor. And we'll, again, we'll talk about this in uh, later on in the podcast, but there's either four spirits who are, well, I say spirits, they're either four entities or four forces, which are all self-identifying as different things, or there is something which is pretending to be different things. Right, which is something we've talked about a number of times on the podcast, isn't it? That 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 kind of entity passing itself off as either one other thing or multiple other things. Yes, yes, com- completely. And so before we talk about the film i thought it was kind of worth pointing out that there is a active website for 30 east drive and it it does record every reported peculiarity that happens in the house so even so it it runs from like from when the website was reported like historic stuff through to uh things that are happening currently but the typical kind of activities that you get um, even today, are things like, uh, and and these are all sort of bullet point notes, TV blaring, house empty, bed in Diane's old room, trashed at 4am. Um, and, and each of these gives a witness. So those two things were witnessed by um, the lady next door is now a housekeeper for the for this house, which has become something of an attraction. So those were both witnessed by them. Mm. Um a circle drawn on back by finger whilst lying on the uh, the floor in the front room. Penny dropping out of nowhere. Um, constantly disappearing portable thermostat. Dolls in front room change position. So we kind of... It's, it's all this really low level of activity. That being... Uh, Diane being dragged up the stairs was definitely like a very unusual sort of singularity within all of this but right right so it's it's quite mild activity yes. and then you have yes. this, this incident it's it's mild and really perplexing activity like some of it is right. like just playful like dolls in the front room changing position there's actually a really interesting one about a dog in the house and um, somebody fills up the dog's water bowl from a jug and then they put the jug back on the side and then before their eyes, the jug refills with water. It's like the ghost is... I say ghost, I'm not prejudging it, but the entity is randomly like giving... like wants to give the dog water, which is a thing. But when you visit the house and I witnessed this, the... Uh, drawer in the kitchen which is full of all the kitchen knives is taped shut because the ghost likes to put 
the knives in all sorts of different places and move them around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that doesn't seem like the the actions of a uh, a particularly nice being. I'm I'm moving slightly forwards and backwards in time because what was interesting about uh, the Diane incident being dragged up the stairs yeah. is it plays um, sort of strangely and almost posthumously in terms of its timeline a role in the most haunted uh, TV show that plays out in the UK. I'm pretty sure a number of our listeners will be familiar with Most Haunted and it was enjoying a run on the really UK TV channel and Halloween 2015 Most Haunted did a live show from 30 East Drive and halfway through the night the show's producer was shown being pulled up the stairs almost in exactly the same way as Diane was. And this was not only shown on broadcast cameras, but it was also shown on a locked-off camera that was being streamed live on the internet. And this caused an awful lot of consternation amongst viewers. People were claiming that this was a staged thing, um, some people were claiming that they saw a rope round his waist. The show was claiming that that was a microphone cord. Um, over an ad break, they created a YouTube clip to show how they didn't fake it. And then, as you were alluding to, later on, there's there's a film that comes together. And this film is... He's di- it's directed by a gentleman called Bill Bungay, who is the co-writer on the book that I am referencing for some of this material. And he's an ad man. He is, if you live in the UK, you will be familiar with one of his most famous ad campaigns, the McCain, we hope it's chips, advert. And he sort of... He falls into filmmaking. I, from what I can read, it's something of a passion. But this film, When the Lights Went Out, it's set in 1974 when um, a subsequent family move into 30 East Drive. And it is partly a true story, but also I think there's some artistic license given to it. But it's, it's the, based on a true story. It's based That's on a line, true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, I've seen the film. It's not a terrible film. It's absolutely fine. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's loosely based on the, the, the things that happen there. I mean, there's a, there's a girl spirit and stuff in there. It focuses, um, I think, less on the, the nasty monk that is supposed to live there now but in summer of 2014 bill buys 30 east drive because he sees that it's for sale and realizes that it would be a really good um way of um sort of pushing the film can we track back and just just so i'm clear can we focus on the real events and the timeline of that yes so the the real events they they start on that August bank holiday in 1966 with the Pritchard family. And the Pritchard family, they 
although they grow up and people move away, the last remaining member of the Pritchard family, Jean, she is still in the house up until the late 2000s. And yeah. then, and when she goes into a nursing home and it, and the house is, is on sale for a number of years before Bill buys it. So right. it is quite difficult to, uh, to find that narrative that is so straight because the because of the film and because of all well, the legends I guess, that I go guess as well it. that there there are even though the same family were in there up until the end there were different iterations of people who were in the house at you know some in the 60s some in the 70s so you you have got different for want of a better word real life characters Involved at different times, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And like, there are there's a there's a famous moment where Joe is confronted in the coal bunker in the house, and he never told anybody what happened to him, and it was like a life changing moment. He apparently was terrified, um, and as we spoke about, the kids were also terrified, but it didn't. It didn't end uh, the the house for Jean. Like I think she was kind of like tenacious about the whole thing. But if right. if you go there now, you will find the house decorated as it was, like in the sixties and the early seventies. There are right. um, those uh, there are posters on the wall um, of the Bay City Rollers and that sort of thing. It's it's a peculiar thing. So I think this is one of the ones that still... It's as perplexing as the Enfield Poltergeist or the Battersea Poltergeist or any of them, really. And, like, the, I suppose the, the thing about it is that none of the legends can be proven. The Black Monk cannot be proven. As you know from listening to that, I've been there. I thought it was one of the strangest people, places I've ever been to in my life. Um, but there's, I suppose what I would say looking back on it is there's no, there's no heavy evidence that isn't a, a film of a black monk walking down the stairs that you can, you you can really put your, uh, you you know, you can put your money behind. You wouldn't bet the farm on it. Although there is, there is a brilliant video that was filled with, that was featured on Nuke's top five and a couple of other of those, um, YouTube amalgamation, uh, ghost video sites. And it was the cleaner from 30 East drive. And she was doing a live stream. I think it was on Facebook video and a lot of strange stuff seems to happen to her. But what I think the biggest sort of problem I have with that site is that it is owned by a film producer and film producers are yeah. going to be very savvy about PR. And and that that site, from what I can tell, is washing its face in terms of finances by having people come and do ghost investigations. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But what I would do if I was thinking, how would I bring more people to my ghost investigation uh, house would be to make a video where a cleaner gets spooked out by ghosts. So, like, uh, I'm not saying it's not true. I I thought thought you were going to tell me the 
the video is a life hack for getting ectoplasm out of your carpet. <laughs> now, look, I can help you with that one, but... <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> it... I, do think, I do think we did say in that episode that uh, if you listen to the full thing, that we, we did decide that we would go there and see if we could uh, i think it was in a different episode actually we talked about going to 30 east drive and pretending not to engage with anything that was going on there and do a completely different episode and would that kind of kick it into life Mm -hmm. i think ruth roper wild wanted to come along as well so we'll keep you posted that if we do that certainly again like we said in the last episode before this one that we had lots of plans that were slightly uh covid jinxed but uh we will get there. We will get there. Uh, we're going to have a quick story now. Uh, we did an episode called Fright at the Museum. See what we did there with the title. Puntastic. <laughs> Here is a little story of one of the greatest artists ever uh, who decided to turn up a, as a ghost uh, and make sure that the people putting his exhibition together were doing it properly. Have a listen. So in 2015, the Cleveland Art Museum ran an exhibition titled Painting the Modern Garden, Monet to Matisse. And it seems the famed Impressionist painter Monet, who died in 1926, decided to oversee the preparations of the exhibition, or is ghosted, at least. On the balcony, overlooking the gallery, a man with Monet's characteristic salt and pepper beard, wearing his trademark bowler-style hat was spotted keeping a watchful eye on various canvases that were being put in place below. Now, that's not just anecdotal. There is a photo of that, which we will... Oh, really? Yeah, there's a photo of that. We'll put it on our uh, social media, uh, at TQM Podcast on Facebook. We always do a photo album that accompanies the episode. So go and check it out for yourself. But in the photo... Uh, it was it was taken by one of the museum staff. In the photograph, the ghostly figure is seen standing on the balcony in a very similar pose to an image of Monet on a giant canvas being stall, installed at the ground level below. So you've got this picture of... I'll describe the picture, but yeah, do go and have a look at it on, on our Facebook. You've got... On the balcony, you've got this guy with this massive long beard and a bowler-style hat who's just standing there in a very similar pose on the top of a balcony. Below the photograph, at the very bottom, there is an image of Monet on a huge canvas, pretty much in the same pose, looking exactly the same. Wow. And it doesn't... You know, nobody's suggesting that's been tampered with or created. Well, the Cleveland Museum claimed the sighting is real. Uh, Soon after the story emerged, Caroline Guscott, communications director for the museum, said to a local newspaper, what are the chances someone looks like that and happens to be at the museum the day we are finishing installation? Now, it could be a publicity stunt. They could Mm. have set the whole thing up. It wouldn't be a bad shout, would you? And to be honest, part of me wouldn't blame a museum for doing that. You know, they're amazing places. And they want to get bums on, well, not bums on seats, but bums through the door. So, but yeah, it, there's something about it that's quite weird. What I, what I think, I guess you could argue this either way, but what I think is interesting 
it could have just been a coincidence or somebody, a fan who dressed up as Monet who'd come to the exhibition on the first day, then you'd kind of go, well, you could see how that happened. But it was the fact it was during the installation. So as far as I can tell, the gallery wasn't open at the point that the photograph was taken. They were putting everything in place for the upcoming exhibition of Monet and Matisse's work. And then this guy spotted there, so... Unless you've got, you know, they've gone, Oi, Colin, in maintenance, you look a bit like Monet. Stick this bowler hat on, go and stand up there. We're going to take a photo of you and get some press. But it's intriguing. It's definitely worth a look at the photo. It's it's really interesting. I think what's amazing about that is the photo. You know, we were talking about 30 East Drive and the fact there's no kind of really proof that makes us go, yeah. There is something about that photo that was fo- uh, was shot at the uh, museum that seems to show a ghostly figure of Monet looking at a picture that was below him that looks mm. exactly the same as the person in it. Mm. I can only think it's either set up, but if it wasn't set up, it's either, again, one of the most amazing jots because it would have just been an incredibly amazing coincidence or uh, potentially a, a ghostly apparition. Who knows? Mm, mm. I mean, uh, like, I, I don't think it is because um, I think we would probably have found out by now, but it is the sort of thing that one might Photoshop for a PR poster. You know, it, not even trying to fool yeah, people, yeah. just uh, you might do it. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah. W- when we started... Uh, recording this what did I say to you about Monet I think that's really interesting yeah 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 because actually we uh, we did a, a we had some guests on which we will feature in a couple of weeks when we look back at guests on the Wandsworth haunting uh, yeah it's the second time we've had a story about Monet on the podcast mm. one of them was a guest that we had on and then there was this one. So, yeah, that's a little jot in itself. A little jot in itself, yeah. Our life is full of jots. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're moving on from life to death. We did uh, an episode on people who were cursed. And what could that be a real thing? We covered various bits. Uh, the curse of Tutankhamun. Uh, but uh, one of the stories that kind of stuck with me, which still makes me scratch my head. Have a listen. So this is the uh, this the idea of the Twenty Seven Club curse first got traction in the late nineteen sixties and early nineteen seventies, with the death of a number of prominent musicians, most notably Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, and Jim Morrison. I mean, there were a lot of others, but I'll focus on them because they're the biggest ones. What connects them, apart from being rock icons, is that they all died at the age of twenty seven. So Rolling Stones guitarist Brian Jones died in 1969. Jones is said to have mixed alcohol, drugs, then died after diving into his swimming pool. Although there are a number of other theories and conspiracy theories around his death and claims he was actually murdered. But either way, he died aged 27. Then Jimi Hendrix died in the early hours of the 18th of September 1970, again through a mixture of drugs and alcohol said he took nine sleeping pills, which didn't sound like much, but the kind of pills he was taking, half of one was enough to knock you out solidly for eight hours deep sleep. So he died age 27. 
not long after Brian Jones. Janis Joplin then died aged 27 in a Hollywood hotel room on the 4th of October 1970 after taking heroin and hitting her head on a table as she fell to the floor. So it was after these deaths that the age 27 and the idea of a curse started to fall. And that was reinforced by the death of Jim Morrison in July of 1971. The Doors frontman died of a drug-induced heart attack, uh, again, age 27. To add to the idea of the curse, three years later, Morrison's girlfriend, Pamela Corson, died of a heroin overdose. And you guessed it, she was also age 27. Mm-hmm. So there's this whole raft of, icon- you know, iconic is the only way to describe them, musicians... Then there, there are a ton of other musicians around the same time who died age 27. Artists, actors also said to have been cursed by that age, including blues legend Robert Johnson, Canned Heat guitarist Al Blind Al Wilson, Dave Alexander of the Stooges. But it kind of died down a little bit until it gained traction again with the death of Nirvana frontman Kurt Cobain. Ah, I was just going to say, that's the one, that's how I know what the 27 Club is, because that's when I first heard about it with him. Yeah, but it had all started in the late 60s, early 70s, with pretty much within the space of a year, Brian Jones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin and Jim Morrison. Right. Um. Weirdly, and I didn't, I, I didn't know this. So, so Cobain shot himself on the eighth of April, nineteen ninety-four, aged twenty-seven. Two months after Kurt Cobain's death, fellow Seattle grunge musician Christian Path, who was a member of the band Hole, was found dead. Of course, the band Hole was led by Kurt Cobain's wife, Courtney Love. Yeah. Uh, aged twenty-seven, the Hole musician Kirsten was found in her apartment dead from a heroin overdose. So. But Kurt Cobain, uh, I guess, is one of the more famous modern members of the 27 Club, but he wasn't the last iconic music star to be affected by the curse. In 2011, one of the most iconic singers of this millennium, Amy Winehouse, died at her London home, you guessed it, age 27. Right, yeah. Again, I, I guess you can hit back and statistically, you know, especially rock musicians, drugs, all that stuff are more likely to die early. Uh, if you're going to die early, you're going to die in your 20s. You, statistically, you could probably find a lot of major uh, recording artists who, I don't know, if you pick 25, you know what I mean, that you could find... I think what's interesting about this story is how iconic all of these, the main people were. Do you know what I mean? Brian Jones, yeah. a legend. Jimi Hendrix, unique legend. Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison. You know, the, these are people who are just... Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse, they, they reached this level that was... a above you know a normal status of a rock star into something more and i think that connects them and the fact they all died at 27 does make this story a little weird for me so i uh, that whole thing about the the tortured artist sort of reaches another level when you listen to things like that because 
it does feel like a curse, but also it feels again like a I don't know, just a failing of the human mind to be able to contain all that creativity and also remain sane. And and that's yeah. what that says to me. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think, you know, I do think that point about if we took somebody who was 25 or 28 and we looked at that, would we still get the same? But I guess the only bit that slightly makes me go about, hmm, that's interesting, is the fact that they are so iconic. Do you know what I mean? And mm. you could, maybe, maybe that's almost a romanticism in a weird way that I'm putting on it rather than a tortured artist romanticism in that sense that I'm putting on it rather than anything else. No, no, but but I think the first thing you think of when, you know, when one talks about, like, iconic artists who aren't here any longer, it is a litany of self-destruction, of, of mental turmoil, and, yeah. you know, from... Like, I know we had that year... But you go from, like, Prince, Michael Jackson, I know he's problematic, but, you know, those those two people were probably killed by their pharmacists who were administering, right. you know, ever, ever more increasingly lethal doses of drugs, all the way through to, um, uh, you know, people who find, found themselves in a situation where they just had to end their own life either on obvious purpose or by being reckless because they couldn't live with the noise in their head and you know i think the whole thing is actually a great advert for mental health support as opposed to a curse but at the same time it does feel like there is probably more to it than meets the eye yeah yeah well, we're going to close this episode with a uh, fascinating place, Bawley Rectory. <gasps> I love Bawley Rectory. Have a listen to the story of Bawley Rectory. Just down the road from Long Melford is what is billed as Britain's most haunted house, and it's Bawley Rectory. Or right. I should say... It used to be Borley Rectory because it burnt down. And we'll get on to that. But there is still the church there. And this is still like Borley Rectory. It's the... uh, I suppose it is used often in uh, scripted dramas. It's used often in books. And there is a very famous researcher who looked into Borley Rectory, and that is Harry Price. And it's his book that I'm using as source material this week. Just to give you a bit of a backstory, Borley Rectory was constructed on a place called Hall Road by a gentleman called Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull. And try saying that after you've had a couple of pints. (laughs) And And that was in 1962. And he moved in a year after being named rector of the parish. And the house itself was built on the site of an early rectory that was destroyed by fire in 1841. This rectory, it was really 
badly damaged by fire in 1939 and demolished in 1944, but we'll we'll come back to that. It has been alleged to be haunted ever since it was built, and those reports, and we'll come on to some of those earlier reports, but it's worth knowing that they multiplied, and in 1929, the Daily Mirror got involved, and again, we keep coming back to how newspapers have played a really significant part in the sort of the, uh, I suppose, the making famous of various UK sites. Yeah. And this this sort of like makes you, you know, makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a little bit in terms of, well, they're in the business of selling newspapers. So we should perhaps be a little bit careful but it was the Daily Mirror that got Harry Price involved. And then he wrote two books about the whole thing. From the very outset, before we even get to the building of the latest um, Borley Rectory that was demolished, there were ghost sightings knocking around. So there's a legend of a Benedictine monastery that was supposedly built on this site in about 1362 and according to the legends there was a monk from the monastery who had a relationship with a nun from a nearby convent this seems like a familiar story right yeah it's got a monk and a nun it's it's like the perfect storm yeah exactly exactly it sort of feels like the start to every horror movie um but the apparently their affair was discovered the monk was executed and the nun was apparently bricked up alive in the convent walls um it's worth because it's supposedly seen the 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 ghost of the nun in the in in the churchyards but as part of the investigation into the hauntings of Borley Rectory, it was confirmed in 1938 that this has absolutely no historical basis whatsoever. Right, pure and folklore. It's pure folklore. Price went in and he was there on behalf of the Society for Psychical Research. Now... I'm gonna. I was. I was toying as to whether to say it now or later. But we will go through some of what Price says. Yeah. But largely, the Society for Psychical Research, the SPR, rejected many of the so-called pieces of evidence that Price brought to the table, right. and it really this case really questioned Price's credibility. There's, there's a number of reasons why. Just before I go into those reasons, I just want to sort of point out that this case was so part of the sort of the zeitgeist in society. The BBC made a show investigating this in 1956, but they cancelled it due to possible legal action by one of the residents uh the one of the previous residents of the of the rectory and again in 1975 the bbc did another investigation and this time they in they used uh famous ghost hunter peter underwood but so so you can see it's been attracting attention for a long a long time but let's let's just 
go back and look at some of the recordings of the haunted experiences around there. So the first paranormal yep. event occurred apparently in about 1863 and a few locals apparently remembered having heard unexplained footsteps within the house at about that time so this is obviously in the previous rectory and then in 1900 four daughters of the rectory this is uh, of the rector sorry this is henry bull again saw what they thought was the ghost of a nun at twilight close to the house apparently they tried to talk to it but it disappeared uh, as it got closer and then the local organist make up your own jokes <laughs> ernest ambrose later said that the family at the rectory were very convinced that they'd seen an apparition on several occasions and various people claimed to have witnessed a number of puzzling incidents and these things include a phantom coach driven by two headless horsemen why they're headless i have no idea and then uh, that continued apparently over the next four decades. Bull himself died in 1892, and it was his son, Reverend Henry Brackett Harry Foister Bull, he took over. In 1927, Harry Bull died, and the rectory became vacant again. And in the following year, the Reverend Guy Eric Smith and his wife moved into the house. And soon after moving in, Smith's wife, while cleaning out a cupboard, came across a brown paper package containing the skull of a young woman. Shortly after this, the family reported a variety of incidents, including the sound of servant bells ringing, despite their being disconnected, lights appearing in windows, and unexplained footsteps. Also... His wife believes she saw a horse-drawn carriage at night. So this, there's this repeated thing of the, the horse-drawn carriage. Yeah. yeah. And so it's at this point, this is where we hit Harry Price because it's then that they contact the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mirror gets in touch with the SPR and then everything else evolves. All of the things that are reported by the family there, so things like spirit messages... Um, stones being thrown, footsteps. Price comes in, does an investigation, and he publishes this book called The Story of Borley Rectory, The Most Haunted House in England. But let's just have a little look at some of the things he says because I think this might tell us more of a story. So... At the outset, I can say there were loads of people who were suspicious of his investigation. But I think when you read the book, it's almost like he's trying to make a case for something paranormal. He, to me, doesn't feel very agnostic about the whole situation. And the first sort of um, paragraph that stands out to me is... And, and I'm, I'm going to um, paraphrase now because it's quite long. But he talks about how the displacement of a matchbox to the extent of only a single millimetre is just as miraculous and just as interesting as the appearance of the nun herself. To the layman, the latter phenomena would be more spectacular. 
Remind me to never go to any of his, his magician shows. Yeah, no, exactly. So he also goes on to talk about um, something called the Marianne messages, and I'm going to come on to those in a minute. Okay. But he, he also, like, it, it's the phrase that he says, and, and when we talk about them, uh, you can judge this for yourself, but he says, if this is not proof of paranormal activity, I do not know the meaning of the word. But if we talk about other things that he thinks are paranormal, so I pick these out of the book. One of the things uh, that he says, so there are there are he 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 basically gets forty eight observers to come and um, spend a few days in the house, and there are, he describes these two gentlemen who are locked and sealed in the house and always kept together, and they hear a inverted commas scrabbling noise and he says well perhaps the entity was trying to write some more brackets notes um another mystery that he says is obviously paranormal and i will i will give him this it's quite weird apparently at the end of the garden there's a bramble thicket and the bramble thicket was disturbed and under the bramble, bramble thicket was um, the skeleton of a cat that had been buried for 30 years. And this was um, dug up. And, and, and he says, you know, this is, this is obviously paranormal. When you say dug up, just literally it become exposed rather than yes, somebody dug exposed. it up. Yes, become exposed. Yeah. Wow, yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, that would freak you out, wouldn't it? Bramble bush, yeah. freaky enough of their own, looking through the brambles cat skeleton you've got me you got me there yeah 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 um but my favorite quote from him in the whole book is where he describes that one of the visitors to the house finds a bag of coal and this bag of coal weighs 50 pounds 50 pounds and he says no other explanation than a paranormal one and i yeah i sort of read that incredulously and go come on i mean if you saw it appear in front of your eyes fair enough but what they just found a bag of coal well no there's a there's a bag of coal in the house because that's what they're using to fuel the fire yeah one of them is unusually heavy and apparently that's paranormal (laughs) i'm definitely not going to one of his shows (laughs) yeah i know exactly can you imagine like paul daniels going aha that's much heavier than you would have imagined it doesn't make any sense at all oh a heavy bag of coal and and this this is and this is where the whole thing starts to to be honest smell a bit fishy so later on another family move into the house and the female of the family she's called marianne mary anne emily rebecca sure they move into the rectory and her husband who is the rector lionel foister makes an account of the paranormal activity that he sees and this is where we talk about the marianne notes so this is a direct quote he says the word marianne was at one time found written on odd scraps of paper 
and Lady Whitehouse suggested we should write What Do You Want underneath one of these, which I did. The next day there appeared what I read as Pest, but which Marianne read as Rest. It might be either, I think, underneath. While on another piece of paper appeared Marianne Help Me, I wrote How underneath that, but no answer was given. Now, that all sounds really interesting and all of the those notes are recorded in harry's book and there's, right. there's actual I, it's very hard to tell whether they're actually images or um artistic reproductions but right. they're in, they're in there and, and also it is very difficult to tell whether um the the responses are real or just scribbles but and i think this is key when the Reverend and Mrs. Foister left the rectory, those messages stopped appearing. And again, this is one of those things where you go, uh-huh, okay. So some people move in, mysterious notes happen. Again, people start alerting the press. Oh, it, it doesn't, you, you know, they go away. Those notes remind me, um, while you're talking about it, they remind me a bit about the real story of Annabelle the doll. Mm-hmm. That was what was going through my mind because they were, I don't think they were responding to them or the, the, the two women who lived in the apartment were leaving them out, but they'd come back and find notes written about them or just with words and stuff on so yeah well, I, I, that was going in my head while you were talking about yeah it. No, that's interesting i hadn't thought of that yeah yeah but it, it's particularly curious when somebody moves into a house notes start appearing they're not in the house anymore and they stop appearing yeah in february 1939 there's a new owner for the rectory and he's a captain gregson Unfortunately, when he's unpacking boxes, he knocks over an oil lamp and the fire quickly spreads around the house and it's massively damaged. During the fire, this is interesting, during the fire there's a, uh, a reference from somebody called Miss Williams who's living in the nearby Borley Lodge and she said she saw the figure of a ghostly nun in the upstairs window and according to harry price this miss williams demanded a fee of one guinea for her story so you know we can put that to one side and then weirdly in august 1943 price conducted a brief dig in the cellars of the ruined house and he discovered two bone two bones thought to be that of a young woman now who thought that they were that of a young woman i would say that they are priced because they were given a christian burial in a place called liston in the churchyard because the parish of borley refused to allow the ceremony to take place on account of the local opinion that the bones were those of a pig so once again we've kind of got the intervention from somebody who Usually when I tell these tales and I say, well, nobody has anything to gain here, Harry wrote two books off the back of this and he's being paid by the Daily Mirror. 
So I think this is pretty dubious evidence and uh, a little bit... uh, I don't know. I think it smells a little bit. And then during my research, I found okay, so there is more to this story and it probably isn't all that meets the eye. So in 2000, in fact, 31st of December 2000, The Guardian published an article about a book called We Faked the Ghosts of Borley Rectory by somebody called Lewis Mailing. Mailing. I'm going to say Mailing. And... uh. They were, it, that house, that rectory was the second home for them until its destruction in the fire in 1938. But he says for the first time, the hauntings were created by the rectory's various inhabitants. He described, he says, how they watched in amazement as the world fell for their elaborate hoax. So, for example, he describes when... um he was staying with the Foisters, the couple had installed a new water heater and this water heater apparently emitted heavy knocking sounds. And although that the couple proclaimed themselves horrified by the noises and pitted the skirting boards with phosphorus powder, which catches fire when exposed to the air, it turns out that it was literally just a water heater The couple also encouraged him, apparently just as a teenager, to walk in the gardens at dusk in a black cape with a turned-up collar, giving birth to the myth of a headless monk who took to writing cryptic messages on the walls. Now, and I think this is the the real killer, because, you know, one would say, well, if, if there are writings appearing on the wall, you know, how would you explain that? And he says, well... Probably to save costs at Borley, and and Borley is probably like it's like maybe forty miles from the sea. Sea sand had been used in the walls in place of the regulation material. This caused a permanent dampness, which swallowed up anything written on them in a matter of hours. So that means if you write something on the wall, it will. It will disappear because of the moisture and then it will reappear when that dries out during the daytime. So that gives the impression of, uh, you know, of of mysterious writing. writing. Yeah. Yeah. But again, a little bit like the Cottingley fairies and all of these things, many scholars recognise the wall writings as being genuine poltergeist activity. So you're kind of left with a story of... It, it it reminds me of um, the Amateurville horror. It's like the 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 substance of it is doesn't live up to the reputation and the stories that are told, or you would think. So after I have presented this story to you here, I was convinced that somebody would have made an investigation into this and would have a different view to this very sceptical view. And obviously, because we're the quantum mechanics, I take a agnostic view. 
But this clip that we're about to play comes from a BBC documentary made in the early 80s, long after the rectory has burnt down. And as you will hear, there are still peculiar things happening. So take a listen to this. Since the demolition of the rectory, an orchard has been planted on the site. But this doesn't seem to have removed the cause of the hauntings, for a wide variety of noises have been heard there, including raps, a panting dog, the sound of smashing crockery, and heavy furniture being moved about. And it was here that the investigators had a very odd experience indeed. And here again, it was moonlight. The funny thing is that most of the time things have happened at Borley, there hasn't been a full moon. Uh, this time we were in the garden of the bungalow. Uh, there's a small fence which runs along by the side of the bungalow, which separates the ground of the bungalow from where the rectory was. We were stood there, very, very quiet, and all of a sudden we heard this thudding in the rectory grounds. It was kind of thud, 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 and a most peculiar sound which we couldn't account for at all. And then we saw the, the fruit trees are growing actually where the rectory stood. The fruit trees, the branch of the fruit trees moved. Uh, and there was no wind at all. It was absolutely still. But the most remarkable thing of this uh, was that something came to the fence and it was an almighty thump. And that's the only time I've ever seen my colleague Roy here step back. At first, we, we thought it might be some animal or wildlife that was moving about. So we, we threw stones in the, in the vicinity of the sound in case it was an animal hoping it would scurry away, but this didn't perturb it at all. It just carried on in the general direction towards the fence. And then, as it came towards the tree, this tree seemed to shake about a bit. So we looked down to see if anything was down there. We saw nothing, and then there was this great big bang on the fence, and that is when I stepped back, thinking, what is it? Is something going to come over? Yet we saw nothing at all. Oh, uh, another, another peculiar thing. Now, this wasn't formal. This was, uh, it was misty. It was a very misty night. Uh, this was somewhere about three o'clock in the morning, and we were all concentrating on the walk. When all of a sudden we heard voices, actually girls' voices and men's voices, and there was laughter and merriment. But somehow, we didn't think much of the time, and in fact, one uh, of the team said, oh, God, there's somebody coming in the roadway at three o'clock in the morning. So with that, we went down towards the roadway, and there wasn't anybody about on the road whatsoever. Yeah, it's Borley is strange. It's, it, I think we said in the whole, in the big episode, it there are kind of similarities with Thirty Years Drive and Borley. It does remind me there's something a bit kind of uh, less problematic in in terms of a sceptical point of view with mm-hmm. Borley than maybe Thirty Years Drive for me. Mm. There's some. I kind of feel there's definitely something more going on there than maybe a 30 East Drive. The 30 East Drive has maybe been hyped up better. That's probably what I'm saying. Yeah, no, I think so. And obviously there wasn't the amount of press around at the time of Borley Rectory. I mean, the problematic thing is people later in life recounting uh, and recanting both of those things, uh, those stories. And... I don't know. You you have to you have to kind of look for what was uh, what was the subplot. Why were these things being 
told, but it is absolutely a haunting place. Like, as we know from that story, the rectory doesn't stand anymore. The church is there. Interestingly, and I know, again, we said it in the long episode, I found it really curious that the church uh, sells leaflets on the ghosts because mm, yeah. I would have thought that that would have been a bit of a contradiction. But it, it, either way, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is still one of those, again, I still bring it back to... I think if there was if there's one thing that we have covered in the last 90x episodes which has been a real head scratcher it's Jeff the talking mongoose and then in the top 5 below that is Borley Rectory because it is so like every time you go down a route and go well oh okay so this person said they were making it up somebody else has contradicted that and said well no no i wasn't making it up and i saw this and and i think um you would like we're recording this before christmas that is no uh every, everybody who's listening to this will know that because uh, we're about to go on a christmas break but a few days ago and hopefully we'll get it out to you in the new year uh we recorded a very very interesting ghost story with a very fascinating and sort of another high-profile contributor. And the things that she said really sort of struck me as being some of the things that were said about Baldy Rectory. But I, w- I, will, I will navigate that when we get to it. But uh, it's one of those, yeah. in, in my which drawer do I put this in, if my top drawer is fake, my bottom drawer is completely true... This one goes in my, I'm not sure. And in the compartment that's in there, it goes in there, I wish it was true. Is that the middle drawer? No, it's the far <laughs> left. It's the far okay, left, yeah. Right. I call it the Arthur Scargill drawer. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, that's our, I mean, check out any of those episodes. They're all good. Um, and, yeah, hopefully that's given you a slightly... Christmassy, ghosty feel. Uh, we're going to carry out, carry on our best of 2021 next week when we move on to aliens and UFOs. So come back, join us then on the Quantum Mechanics. Thank you, and have lovely holidays, Christmas, whatever you call it. Thank you for listening to us. See you then. See you then. Quantum mechanics.